Salams and welcome to another episode of Network Reorient. Today we have with us Yahya Bert who will be speaking on decolonial Muslim political activism and thought in Britain. Salam uh, Please introduce yourself and the work that you do. Assalamu uh, alaikum. Thank you for having me on the Reorient podcast. Uh, my name is Yahya Burt. I'm a PhD candidate at the University of Leeds uh, in Theology and Religious Studies. Uh, my PhD thesis is looking at a social and intellectual history of Muslim political activism in Britain, stretching between the 1960s up until the 1990s. And my framing is an attempt to make a decolonial framing uh, and not looking at this uh, this phenomenon within the horizon of uh, the nation state and questions of integration, assimilation, or um, you know, or that kind of nationalistic framing. Okay, um, you mentioned the decolonial uh, both just now and in, in your presentation as well. So I want to ask, what is the decolonial for you? And you struck a difference in your presentation between decolonization and decoloniality. So can you first talk about what the decolonial is for you? And then what's the difference between decolonization and decoloniality? Okay, so um, I guess I have a rather conventional, I'm working with a rather conventional definition of the decolonial. So um, it's thinking otherwise than Europe or the West. Uh, or the modern mm. um, uh, in a dialogical, uh, in a critical way. Um, and um, I'm interested in that as a political process and as an epistemological process. Mm. Um, and so um, I guess um, being in the academy, of course, we're telling the history of um, political struggle, um, um, but we may be you know, more obviously concerned with epistemological questions generally, you know, conceptual framing and mm. so on and so forth. Um, I think we're all concerned about how Muslim political agency has been stigmatised uh, consistently and we're looking for constructive and creative ways to look at that rather than, you know, rather than just to sort of, um, I'm interested in recovering that history, uh, learning from it uh, and uh, rather than telling it a kind of dismal story of misrepresentations uh, mm. through the Western or white gaze. Uh, I'd much rather, you know, that we, we learn something from that history of anti-colonial, uh, decolonial struggles. Um, something that might even inspire us today, or things okay. that we can think through and against ourselves, or consider ourselves to be part of a, a radical tradition and to uh, of dissent and resistance, and to actually to celebrate that and to learn from it. Okay. Um, so I want to move on to the second part of the question which I asked you, which is what is the difference between decolonization and decoloniality? Because you mentioned this in your presentation and I was quite taken by that difference. So what do you see that? Okay, as? well de decolonization is, 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 um, describes a process of uh, political delegitimization in which um, uh, the global south would no longer accept the rule of the North, global North, no mm. longer legitimised it. And it was delegitimised through a process of anti-colonial uh, resistance. And but it also so it's not only a process of delegitimisation; it's also a process of uh, was a process of um, actually dismantling 
of empires in the global south, mostly, not all, but mostly between 1945 and, and 1975. Okay, there were, there were independence movements before and after, but the bulk of it was in that period after the, the Second World War, um, 25 years or so. So, so the, the thing is, then, decolonization is periodized. Um, it's seen as a limited form of delegitimation, de de which is just political delegitimation of a particular form of colonial rule. And, you know, finally, it demarcates uh, a boundary point between the colonial and the post-colonial. So that's mm. separated by this process of decolonization. Decoloniality, in a way, works against all of those assumptions. Okay, so it broadens the idea of delegitimation to mm. include the epistemological. Right? Saying that coloniality, colonialism, operated as a form of world making, where the colon you know, how the colonized saw themselves, saw their history, saw their civilization, saw that even their ways of knowing and being in the world as being delegitimized, and therefore um, a, de a decolonial move is to is to relegitimize those ways of being and doing and knowing being in the world okay otherwise than mm. as defined by the colonizer so there is a if you like a decolonization of the mind okay it has to take place not just the reclaiming of, of, of land but also the reclaiming of, of epistemological space as well so in other words the process of decolon decolonizing is ongoing and includes intellectual space and not just physical space okay so that that's that's mm. that's one major difference another major difference is that it is um, not periodized okay so it's not a discrete political historical process but it's an ongoing open-ended process in other words there's still forms of coloniality around i.e. there are still ways of seeing the world that subjugate the non-west to the west and for that to be overturned is an ongoing piece of work, it's not finished, it's not closed, it's not ended. Okay, so mm. it's something that's very much present and alive, even though we might be in a different form, set of formal political arrangements today, De you know, decolonizing of uh, intellectual space, ways of knowing and being in the world continue. And finally, um, there is no demar there's no demarcation between the colonial and the post-colonial. Mm. All we see is a continuous process of delinking from the West with different inflections. Mm. Um, and the, the, how this uh, relates to my work, if you want me to go on yeah. and to talk about that. Okay, so, so in my work, um, you know, I, I started out by looking at this as a post-war phenomenon. Okay, look, starting with the 1960s, because that was when institutionalization of Muslim political activism really becomes visible. Um, visible uh, uh, in Britain uh, with some of in continuity with the institutions that we see today. So, for yeah. instance, we have institutions that were established in the 1960s that are still around now. Yeah. And that's why I went back to the 1960s because I wanted to sort of tell the long history of these yeah. student bodies and the other institutions that were think tanks that were set up in the 1970s and so on. So, I thought, let me tell the long story of these institutions, but I quickly sort of I, I, over time, I came to decide that actually that was the wrong, uh, wrong framing, wrong yeah. because actually they were coming out of an anti-colonial experience that generation had 
lived within European empires and saw their ending, and were now part of a project of, um, at home it was nation state building, building an independent state. Uh, these students came over to gain skills that could go back and build their countries, basically. Mm. And many, you know, and at the same time, you know, it's, 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 you know, it's, at the same time, Islamic revivalist movements were looking themselves to become globalized and were looking themselves to operate in places like Britain and America, where students were being sent to train and say, mm. look, we've got to inspire these disparate people coming together from across the Muslim world with a vision of, of the politics of Ummah. Mm. Okay, with the kind of transnational, with the transnational solidarity, and the reason why I started to understand that we could go further back and understand this as a longer historical arc was because many of the people I was looking at, their fathers were involved in anti-colonial struggles. Okay. So these were family traditions, yeah. or at least in their childhoods, they had experience, direct experience of of a negative colonial encounter with a colonial official or whatever it was. Mm. So it, we we couldn't cut off the colonial. So I wanted mm. to see that the other thing that I noticed was that they're also from an early stage always concerned with epistemological questions. So they were always talking about Orientalism before Said was talking about Orientalism in the seventies. So in the early seventies, yeah. you had a lot of these Muslim intellectuals talking about Orientalism, expressively using the term, before Said publishes his book. And, and mm. so, so you know, we we, we actually there's actually recover, there's actually a critical epistemological element to their search to sort of find, uh, to find an empowered form of Muslim political, economic, intellectual agency in the, po in the kind of the post, in the post after, the decolon after decolonization. And so that struck me as being decolonial. This was, they were saying all the things in the 60s that were being theorized now mm. in, the, in, the, in the noughties and the, and, and the 2010s by decolonial theorists. Okay. So I, I thought that, that it, was, it was right for us to go back and actually, actually to label them as decolonial in, mm. that, in that broad sense. Yeah. They couldn't be named as, de as, as decolonial in the sense of uh, uh, adhering to, as Salman Said calls, a kind of uh, postmodern Heideggerian uh, sort of hermeneutics mm. or anything like this, or a kind of a, a position towards language theory that doesn't see it as foundational. You know, mm. it's an anti-foundational account of language, yeah. creation of a meaning. They don't adhere to any of those things. But at the same time, they were, they were self-consciously saying that we can create our own source of power and strength. They had a, they had a critique of the materialism of, of the West. Mm. Materialism in the 1960s, a critique of the materialism of the West. Okay, and that they wanted to create a modernity that wasn't materialistic, that was imbued by values of Tawheed and, and, and the foundational values of Islam. Um, but they definitely had an idea of progress and development and all of that was there. So those sort of elements of modernity were there, uh, if you like. Uh, but they were saying we have to propose an alternative. Okay. So, 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 you know, what's at stake in saying that... Um, if they're engaging with the modern in ways we wouldn't recognize now as legitimate necessarily, but we might have an environment, ecological critique of it, or we might have qualms about you know, some of the notions around language theory or whatever. But leaving all of that aside, um, do we have the right to say that's not decolonial? And that's what I'm questioning myself by, by reading these earlier figures from the 1960s, because I see so many echoes in what they were saying back then 
for what we're talking about now. Okay. And so I, I think it's important not to, to pay careful attention to what they were saying in order to realise what's really at stake of what we're saying now and what's mm. actually really different. Mm. Okay, just to see how things have developed yeah. kind of thing intellectually. Okay, um, I want to now go on to some of these figures that you mentioned specifically in uh, your presentation. So the first was uh, Mushir Gidwai, um, who you spent uh, quite a bit of time you know, explaining what he did and how he did it and his ideas. So I want to just ask you, and you talked about how just now we should look to the past scholars who were decolonial, not necessarily in the same way that we are, but there were echoes, to use your word. So I want to ask you, how can uh, Mushir Gidwai's active political life inspire our thinking today? How, what should we take well, from Well, him? just let, let me spend a few minutes first introducing think, him yeah. for those who weren't at, the, yeah. uh, at my presentation at the conference. So um, Shir Hussain Gidwai, um, he lived, uh, he died in 1937. Um, uh, he was from North India. Uh, he was a lawyer, he was an activist, uh, he was a prolific writer, um, and he played an important role in linking Indian Muslims to the, to the Ottomans. Uh, and he spent about 20, 15 years in England, off and on, and worked to um, support the, the cause of the Caliphate in its final years. Uh, particularly in the post-First World War period, um, he was part of the Khilafic movement. He, in fact, he helped to found its precursor in 1913. Um, and he tried to articulate what you might call a kind of uh, Islamism, uh, pan-Islamism of the, of the left, mm. because he was trying to marry that with sort of socialist ideas around uh, emancipation of women and uh, uh, dealing with... Um, uh, gross inequality in society mm-hmm. um, and and so he took up elements of socialism and tried to fuse it with his anti-imperial struggle and um, uh, and and with the later on joining the the Indian independence movement so I think you know I obviously we've got to be cautious about uh, cherry-picking um, things from figures from the, our recent past mm-hmm. uh, out of context um, but but what I what I admire about um, Shir Hussain Kidwai was his um, uh, was his mobility, his ability to, to sort of network internationally mm. um, uh, between the 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 metropole, imperial metropole in London, to his original community back in North India, but also in dialogue with the rem- one remaining Muslim power at the time. Uh, the 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 Ottoman Empire. So, you you have basically the largest body of Muslims mm. housed within the largest empire in the world in dialogue with the largest remaining Muslim power. Okay. So he had this strategic. Yeah. He had a strategic sense uh, of what was uh, most important at the time, mm. and um, you know you can read him as radical but at the same time pragmatic because he still you know was dealing with the politics of negotiation you know it wasn't it wasn't sort of in, in the context of, of um, negotiating with the colonial powers when he when he went back to india he he got involved in in civil disobedience okay. like the Swaraj campaign and uh, and things like this um uh, initiated by gandhi and so on so i think it's um you know he used uh, he used different techniques of 
public education and of resistance uh, as, as, as the situation required. The other thing that's notable about him was that he, he didn't trust what he called Malanaship in politics. Mm. So he didn't like the idea that the lead should be naturally and easily given over to the ulama to lead political movements. Mm. He felt that they should definitely bless it and they should advise it, but they shouldn't necessarily lead it in terms of its tactics and in terms of its you know, kind of, you know, strategic direction. So he was open to a kind of critical dialogue with the ulama, not cutting mm. them off, but actually also not giving them full sway over mm. the meaning of Muslim politics. So I think that's a healthy relationship, yeah. which is where you keep dialogue open, but it's not a dialogue without critique. In, mm. in it, but it's not a closed. No. Our problem today is actually either shutting down the dialogue, and we're or we're just laying it too far. Or, or we go, it's or, or we just, it becomes an uncritical relationship. And I think he shows a middle way. Wait. Okay, um, I want to move on now to the second figure in your um, presentation, Kamal Siddiqui. And again, if you could introduce him for those of our listeners who weren't there at the presentation, and also then could you. Um, Answer whether so, Kamal Siddiqui. You um, state in your present, or you stated in your presentation that Kamal Siddiqui critiqued post-colonial states for not providing an independent way forward for Muslims. I want to ask: Did he provide anything like a blueprint or a set of concepts that we can use regarding this of providing of an independent way forward? Well, um, um, uh. Kalam Siddiqui, uh, who lived between 1931 and 1996, okay, so just to introduce him briefly, you know, he was a journalist, he was an academic, and he was a political theorist, and he was a community organiser, um, and um, he lived in Britain from after 1954, um, and he's best known for the Muslim Institute, which he established in 1974, um, a kind of very dynamic think tank that looked, talked and thought long and hard about practical theoretical issues around a renewed Muslim political theology. Okay, mm. uh, how to make politics work for Muslims in the post-colonial period. The other thing that he and he was a prolific writer. The the other thing that he did was after the Rushdie affair set up in 1992, the Muslim Parliament, which was like a short-lived political experiment in exercising sovereignty as a minority without any formal political power. So mm -hmm. how do you empower the community to set its own strategic direction and vision? Okay, and the fact he named it a parliament mm -hmm. was directly to say, to make the political point, which is that actually Muslims have to take, try to take control of their own affairs as far as is humanly possible for their own betterment and good. Because mm -hmm. seeing yourself as a minor minority would not enable you to exercise, uh, to exercise um, a conscientious use of um, Muslim empowerment, okay? Mm -hmm. So he was heavily criticized, even within the community, as well as angering the British establishment for using the term parliament, okay? okay? Um, but I think that he understood what he was about to get into when he mm -hmm. made that decision. I don't think it was a flippant decision, but he was making a point about, about what kind of politics empowers and what kind of politics disempowers. You know, mm -hmm. if you hand over your agenda, your resources, your initiative, 
to be dictates of, a, of an assimilationist or liberal integrationist government governance, it probably you're letting go of a lot of things that are very important for the healthy continuation of Muslim life yeah. in a minority context, and that was what he thought was at stake. Um, so that was his activism, particularly post-Rushdie, where he became attached to what the politics of Ummah would mean for, for a minority mm. in a secular democratic state. Okay. Prior to that, he was, um, he, for him, the, your answer about what would Muslim politics should or what ought it look, to look like after, uh, after colonialism, mm. um, he, he, in the 70s he said, let us not, um, in, in, in the context of the Cold War, say that Muslim politics should either be aligned with America with capitalism, with the market, okay, mm. and neither should it be aligned with the Soviet Union, with socialism and so on. It's not that it's either Islamic capitalism or Islamic socialism, yeah. but actually we need to find a third way. Mm. So he clearly said this in the 1970s, you know, after mm -hmm. sort of diagnosing, he did his doctoral thesis on, on Pakistan and he clearly showed how Pakistan's elite was very much um, sort of in, in, in a tied up with very restrictive post-colonial arrangements. Okay. They were restricting the actions of that elite, but also how it wasn't serving the interests of the Pakistani people. And you know, his radical answer was nationalism itself, but above and beyond kind of Cold War ideologies, nationalism itself was not serving a politics of the Ummah. Mm. Okay. On a personal level, he found the answer in 1979 uh, with the Iranian Revolution, okay, because but a, but a certain version of the Iranian Revolution, because he, thereafter he had many arguments. There were people, with, you know, many. He was part of that argument within Iran about how to understand the impact and potential legacy of the Islamic Revolution, Islamic Revolution in in Iran. Okay, so. So his argument was that um, basically, uh, uh, which is what he thought was Khomeini's emphasis, and certainly Ayatollah Khamenei, who came afterwards, was influenced by Siddiqui directly in this regard. Was and this is what Siddiqui kind of argues is that um, Muslim politics has to be post-Madhabi. Mm. He uses this phrase, and that there's a there's a historic convergence over many centuries between. Sunni and Shi'i political theology, mm -hmm. okay, getting beyond the imamate theology of in twelve Shi'ism and the quietism of late Sunni Islam, and coming towards a kind of um, uh, expression in Khomeini's idea of the guardianship of uh, the revolution. Okay, mm -hmm. so his his argument is that basically um, you cannot uh, you, you you cannot. Um, delay the moment, uh, the question of the political, okay? Mm. Uh, you cannot just, um, in the post-colonial Westphalian political order, uh, talk about just managing politics, okay? Mm. So what he's really talking about is, um, he's talking about politics of the almost. He's also arguing that, you know, you can't constrain this within a system of nation states, mm. okay? So he was practical in that he thought that Iran should practically be supported by other states in proximity that would also have their own Islamic revolutions. So, you know, he worked for that in Pakistan and in other places, okay, okay. and in the Arab world. So the Crescent, the magazine that he sort of relaunched in 1980, uh, was also published in Arabic for a few years. Um, so he did have an international mm -hmm. audience. So I think, you know, wrapping up, um, wrapping up, um, 
uh, he's left a considerable body of writing mm. that in many ways, I hope in my thesis to show that in many ways anticipates a lot of the work of Salman Said, for instance. Mm. Um, and um, while it doesn't use the same theoretical framework, it reaches many, many similar conclusions. Okay. All right. Thank you very much, Yahya. This has been another episode of Network Reorient. Thank you for tuning in. Please have a listen to some of our other episodes and leave a rating.